It is consumed by the idea of identity, part of us. If we can figure out our identity, we truly know who we are. Our identity tells us who we are, who our people are, what, should we, what we should care about, and what we should do with our lives. It's an innate human desire to belong to a group, to have a community that supports you and cares about you. It's interesting that the group that has the most incredible identity doesn't claim it. The Bible answers the question that we have about our identity and purpose. Though society has multiple criteria for what your identity is, the Bible only has one. And that is if you are a follower of Christ or not. For those who follow Christ, we are given a glorious identity, but we would rather identify ourselves in other ways. What we do for work, what we do for fun, if we have children, if we're married. While some of these things define us more than others, none of them truly give us our identity or purpose. The last few weeks, we've been going through Romans 8 and 9, and there have been many times that the words called, predestined, and chosen have come up. But what is our identity after being called? What have we been called to do? This week, we're going to take a break from Romans 9 and examine the glorious truths of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And as with all scripture, context is everything. So we're going to read from verse 4 to verse 12. So once you're there, say amen. All right. So as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And here's our main text. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and we will dive in. Father God, I come for you now just asking you to remove me and let your words speak through me, Lord. I pray that 
uh, your words will be heard. I pray the Holy Spirit will um, work through me and in the hearts of the ones that hear this. Uh, just use me as your mouthpiece, God, as we go through this glorious truth that you've given to us. Just now I pray. Amen. So today we're going to break down verses 9 and 10 into three main points. Who have we been called to be? what we are called to do, and what is to fuel our worship. Our first point this morning is who we are called to be. The first part, the first part of verse 9 tells us what we have been chosen to become. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. There are four categories that Peter tells us that we have become. But we hear this, sing this, and say this so often, we lose the majesties of these truths. Let's look at each one individually so we can recapture what we have lost in repetition. First Peter first calls us a chosen race. So irrespective of, of ethnicity, all that are called to Christ are in one chosen race. This race is not identified by color or culture, but by creed. We have been unified and defined by the one that we have put our faith in, Jesus. We are defined by the being chosen by Christ. It doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, or white. For the Christian, our skin color is not what gives us our identity. Christians are not the black race, but the chosen race. Not the white race, but the chosen race. Not the Hispanic race, but the chosen race. This is our identity, and this is what binds us together in Christ. The word race in the ESV comes from the Greek word genos, which means descendant, nation, or kind. The word also points to us being a family in Christ. We are all one family with one father. We have been adopted out of our sin and hatred towards God. We've been, been taken, given a heart of flesh, re replacing the heart of stone so that we can pursue God. Just like adoption as we see it now, the child doesn't come to the family and tell them that they're going to be part of it. The family comes to the child and tells them that they have decided to set their love upon them. This is what God has done for us. We were orphans without hope, and the Father decided to set his love upon us. Now all Christians, past, present, and future, are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are able to approach the Father and call him Abba. Christ is our elder brother, the firstborn from the dead, and we are co-heirs with him. Peter goes on to say that we are a royal priesthood. A few verses before our, our main passage, Peter flushes out what a royal priest does. 1 Peter 2, 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, have been built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Every believer is called to be a priest. This is not an option. Peter modifies the type of priests that we are by saying we are royal priests. 
We are not royal in and of ourselves. We are defined as royal priests because we serve the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are not just stones that house the Spirit of God. We are not just a passive building that, that is adorned for his glory like the temple in the Old Testament. We are active participants in the worship that is given to Christ. What does this mean, though? In the Old Testament, the Levites were set apart to be priests. They were the ones that would make the sacrifices for the people of Israel. While they made animal sacrifices, we no longer have to bring our bulls and our lambs to get for the atonement of our sins because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We are called to make spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices include the believer's prayers, praises, will, body, time, and talents. Spiritual sacrifices are what we are called to. We are called to be a living sacrifice. We'll get there eventually, but Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, <laughs> I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are called to lay down the identity that we would choose for ourselves and embrace the one that God has given to us. We are called to die to ourselves and be transformed by the word of God. Other than not having to kill animals to atone for our sin, there's one profound difference between the Old Testament priests and the royal priests that we're called to today that I don't think we do not believe we think about often enough. In the Old Testament, it was the high priest who was able to go into the Holy of Holies and make sacrifice and repent for the people once a year. This was an extremely dangerous task. He would have bells sewn into his garments and a rope tied around his leg. The bells were to let the, high, the priest know outside of the Holy of Holies that the high priest was still alive. If, we, if he was found um, to be unholy, he would have been struck dead for entering into the presence of a holy God. Then the other priest would drag him out by the rope because if anyone else would dare to enter into the Holy of Holies, he would have been struck down as well. This is not the case for us, though. Through Christ, we have access to the Father at all times. We don't have to go through any purification process every time we want to pray. We have consistent access to God through our Lord and Savior. Can you imagine the high priest entering into the Holy Holies to ask to make his stub toe feel better? It would never happen. On the other hand, we have the ability to do so. We are able to go to the God of the universe and bring him the smallest request. How blessed we are to have this access and live in the new covenant. Peter doesn't stop there. He adds that we're a holy nation. 
No nation can claim the title of holy. That title only belongs to the church. The word holy means set apart. That is what we're called to be, a set apart people. We are to be in the world, but not of it. Jesus says in John 17, 14 through 15, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. What have we been set apart for though? We have been set apart to the obedience of our Lord. We, have, we were sent into the world to be his priests and bring him glory. We are holy as our God is holy. When we act unholy, we are acting outside of the new nature that Christ has been given, has given to us. Though we're not of this world, it doesn't mean that we're not to build and to go and cultivate this world for God's glory. We are far too Gnostic in our idea about the physical world. We, the Gnostics believed that we needed to be delivered from the spiritual world to enter into this. We need to be delivered from the physical world to be delivered into the spiritual one. And this is not how the God of the Bible operates. In Jeremiah 29, 28, Jeremiah prophesied to the Israelites saying, for he has sent us in Babylon saying, your exile will be long, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat of their produce. In Peter, uh, verse 11, he says that we are exiles. So our exile will be long because as long as we live in Christ, we are exiles. And we are to come and we are to grow our families, build businesses, create ministries, and take public office all to the glory of God. We are called to spread the great news of our great King. We are not called to just sit here and wait on the Lord's return. We are to be and to build a holy nation unto our God. Lastly, Peter calls us a people of God's own possession. At the Tower of Babel, the nations were divided and God selected Abraham and his lineage as his special possession. In Genesis 12, 1 and 2, Abraham, a pagan idol worshiper, was called by God to leave his father and go to a land that God has given him. Through Abraham's line, the Messiah has come. Through the blood of the Messiah, Gentiles like us are now able to be part of his possession. We have been purchased by the blood. We are not our own. The children of the church have been learning about Ruth in their class. Tripp and I were talking about Boaz being Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer. In the Old Testament, a kinsman redeemer is a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who is in trouble, danger, or need. Through Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather, we have such a beautiful picture of what it is to be purchased or redeemed. Like Boaz was to Ruth, Christ has set his love on us when we had nothing to offer him in return. All he received was a filthy, rebellious, 
and stiff-necked people. But because of his love for us, we received mercy that we did not deserve. Each one of us belong in the fire of hell for the treason that we have committed against the holy, righteous, and pure God of the universe. To display his steadfast love, he chose to love us, choosing us as his own possession, that we, that we could have hope when we had no hope apart from him. And we should rejoice for being called, called his possession. So to, according to this first section of text, Peter identifies us as a chosen, mercy-receiving, set-apart priesthood for the glory of the one who saved us. Why do we not cling to this? If there's an identity worth clinging to, it's this one. What we have become in Christ is breathtaking. A wretched sinner like me that had no hope of ever coming close to God on my own, running away and rejoicing in my darkness, has been chosen to become a, a part of a new race, receiving the mercy I didn't deserve, set apart for a calling that was too glorious for me, and given the ability to approach God whenever I want to. Brothers and sisters, this is our identity in Christ. Answering the question about who, are, who we are leads us to what we should do. What is our purpose after being redeemed? The second part of verse 9 tells us that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to proclaim his excellencies. This is done through the thoughts, words, and deeds of each believer. It is the destiny of a royal priest to make the glories of their king known. How are we to do this? There are two modes of worship in the Christian life. There's corporate worship that we're doing right now and the worship in our day-to-day -day lives. Let's start with corporate worship. How, we're, how are we to approach corporate worship? With reverence, remembering who we are approaching in our worship. Through worship, we are entering into the presence of the one that the angel cries, holy, holy, holy about. We are also able to enter in boldness because we have been purchased by the blood of the lamb. So why should we be reverent? There are multiple times in the Old Testament where someone did not worship God rightly as they were directed to and they were killed for it. In Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, Nadab and Abihu offered incense to God that he did not demand. They perished because they did not worship God rightly. Um, in Exodus, when God came down on Mount Sinai with fire, Mount Sinai was covered in smoke and the whole mountain trembled violently. Hebrews 12, 21 said, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Moses, one of the most holy men in the Bible, did not go up casually onto that mountain to meet with God. He knew of the holiness of God and the guilt of him as a sinner. Moses was the only one that God even allowed to approach the mountain. If anything, even an animal even came close, they were to be stoned to death. 
as American Christian society, we have lost our reverence for worship. Do take time to gather before on Sundays to get in the mindset of worship. Do you prepare to enter into the presence of a thrice holy God? We take worship so lightly, and I think we're in error for it. So while we should enter in reverence, we can also come in boldness because of the work of Christ on the cross. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, The Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, fits this quite well. Lucy is coming to Mr. Beaver and asking him about Aslan. Mr. Beaver's response about coming to him reflects very well about coming into the presence of God. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course it isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Though I don't use the NIV often, I do like how, how it states Ephesians 3.12. It says, in him, which is Christ, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Because of the work of Christ and the faith that we've been given, we are able to come into the presence of God. There's nothing holding us back from freely coming to him for anything. As mentioned in the points above, we, have, we are a chosen race, part of God's family, and his royal priest. Though we were once wretched sinners with no hope of coming to God unscathed, we're able to come before him because he sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That first song fits so perfectly with this. Isaiah's words about our condition after salvation in Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as the bride adorns herself with her jewels. He does not see our sin anymore. Though we were unholy, we are seen as holy. Though we are impure, we are seen as pure. This is the great exchange that Christ made with us on the cross. Romans 8.3 says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, which is God, condemned sin in the flesh. Whose flesh bore the condemnation? Christ. And whose sin was being condemned? Ours. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The fact that sinners like us can come before God and give acceptable worship is astounding, and we cannot praise him enough. So when we gather together for corporate worship, where's your mind and heart at? Are you focused on the triune God that saved you from your sin? Are you thinking about the approval or disapproval of the song selection this week? Are you thinking about how you would like the songs to be more contemporary or more traditional? Are you thinking about hitting the next note of the song right? Are you thinking about all of the things that you have to do today?
Are you thinking about lunch? We are so self-centered. We can so easily slip into worshiping ourselves instead of Christ. John Calvin says that our nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Having a heart focused on ourselves, our opinions, our preferences, and our desires in worship, instead of focused on God, is one of the many ways that we drift, that we drift towards idolatry. What a sin to come and gather as a church and end up worshiping ourselves. We need to repent. I know I do. We must turn from this mindset and focus on God. Proclaim the excellencies of God and worship is not only done through singing. We are to proclaim the excellencies of God through our words and our deeds. Just a couple of verses before, after our main text in 1 Peter 2.12, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Though works and good deeds do not save, we are called to good deeds. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has placed you here in Gainesville in the place that you work with the people that you're surrounded with to bring glory to himself through your good deeds. I pray that we will recognize the good works that he has prepared for us so that we may do them as our spiritual sacrifice and that God will receive the glory from the others that are around us. We're also called to speak about what God has done. Appreciating something internally to yourself is one thing, but expressing it to others is one of the highest expressions of gratitude one can make. Because a Christian, being a Christian and making the excellencies of God known are almost identical the excellencies of his undeserved mercy towards us, the excellencies of him making us pure and holy. He has given us this identity to proclaim his identity. Our identity is for, for the sake of his identity being made known to the people around us. We do this by telling others what he's done for us letting our coworkers know that we are trusting in him for our needs, telling people we interact with what we love about God, telling our brothers and sisters in Christ that we're struggling, but clinging to the promises of God because he has never failed us yet. This is how we praise the one that has brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The last question we're going to look at this morning is what should fuel our worship? Peter gives us the answer in verse 9 and 10. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Imagine a man in a medieval dungeon bound in chains and surrounded by darkness. The only light he knows are a couple of flickering candles around him. 
this would be all that he's able to see. Then one day, the man is released because someone paid his fine. Then climbing up the stairs to his freedom, he's greeted by the noonday sun. Imagine that blinding, marvelous light that he's greeted by. It'll be difficult to describe the joy that man would experience, but the Christian can. The Christian can express that joy because we were bound in chains and surrounded by the darkness of our sin. But Christ paid the fine for us. We are no longer in the bondage that we were in. We were released into his blinding, glorious light. The light that shone on the first day of creation when God said, let there be light shining on the newly redeemed royal priest. We often forget about how great the chasm between us and God. We forget far too often about the righteousness of God and the justice that he demands. We speak so often about the love of God. We say so often that God is love. This becomes the only characteristic of God in our minds. We forget that he will not look upon sin. In the first part of Habakkuk 1.13, it says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. God will not allow sin in his presence. Psalms 5, 4 through 5 says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This is why it is so important that, a great, that the great exchange happened on the cross. God can look upon us and be pleased with us because we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. Because we are able to, because of this, we are able to approach his marvelous light. Then there are two phrases. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's no way that the Jewish reader could read verse 10 and not be called back to Hosea. Hosea was called by God to marry a prostitute named Gomer. God told him to name his daughter, No Mercy, and his second son, Not My People. This was a judgment against the Israelites because they played the whore with the, God of the, of, with the gods of the nations around them. We're just as guilty, though, of running to our sin and being idolaters to the God of self. But through the work of Christ on the cross, God has called us to be his people. Peter is contrasting who we used to be to who we are now called in Christ to propel us to worshiping God. In verses eight and nine, Peter contrasts those who are destined to disobey the word and the Christian. Though we are no longer ones that are destined to disobey, we can lose sight of who we used to be. When you're struggling to get into the mindset of worship, remind yourself who you were the deep darkness, that sin that Christ pulled you from. When you are proud, remind yourself of the pit that God sovereignly plucked you out of. 
when you're spiritually well, remind yourself that you were spiritually dead and the great physician came and raised you from the grave of your sin. How can we not worship when we consider the mercy that we've received from God? God has been so patient with us, not striking us down after we sinned against him over and over and over again. Then has given us the mercy that we did not deserve. The sermon's been focused on the Christian's identity to stir the heart of the believer to greater worship of God that has given us this glorious identity. But my friend, if you have not put your faith in Christ, this identity isn't yours. You are still in the darkness of your sin. You have not come into the marvelous light of Christ. I pray that you would place your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins today. I pray that God would draw him to yourself so that you could claim this identity and purpose. There is nothing that you can do that will earn your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't be spiritual enough. The only way is putting your faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This is your call to repent and believe the gospel. And please don't do it. Uh, please do it before leaving today because um, we're not promised tomorrow. So as the band comes up, let's prepare our hearts to respond in worship. The worship, to worship the one that brought us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's worship him for making us a people, calling us to be royal priests making us part of his possession. Let's worship him because we are no longer who we used to be. Worship him for being able to come to him with boldness. Let's pray and we'll worship the Lord.